You're listening to How to Stan, the podcast all about both specific fandoms and fandom culture as a whole. For more information about the show and the other show that I do, 17 Karat K-Pop, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. You can also go to 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how to stand for more specific information about this podcast. Enjoy the show! You're listening to a four-part mini-series for How to Stand about television fandoms. Part one is about television shows that developed quite a passionate fan base and how they did it. Part two is about how fans have saved shows and renewed them. Part three is about fans promoting, in other ways, their favorite shows. And part four is about crowdfunded TV shows and movies and fans when they actually fund projects and all of the implications and concerns surrounding that. Part three, fans helping promote their favorite TV shows. In 2002, what was described as a space western show aired on TV. It was very short-lived, it lasted only four months on the air, and it only had 14 episodes, but despite that small amount of time on the air, it had built up quite a passionate, small but mighty little fan base at the time called the Browncoats. So this fandom even had a name for themselves, and they had already become very invested very quickly in this show called Firefly. In this show, there is a main character named Jane, who gets the special lumberjack-style knitted hat, and this became a big symbol for fans to indicate their fandom affiliation. So, because the show was on the air for such a short period of time, there was no official merch to go with it, so fans took it upon themselves to do it. So fans started making and selling on websites like Etsy their own versions of what they called the Jane Hat, which was from the show Firefly. And then when they went to Comic Cons and similar events, and they saw other fans in those hats, that was a way to know who else was a fellow fan of the show, a fellow brown coat, as they said it. And so they continued to do that for a decade after the show aired, and you could still, a decade later, see a Comic Con people wearing the Firefly hats, aka the Jane hats. December 2012, this website called Think Geek started selling a licensed version of the hat, the first licensed version. And Etsy sellers then got cease and desist letters sent to them because they were viewed as violating copyright because they were making versions that were different from a licensed version that had popped up. Despite Etsy sellers having done this for a decade before the licensed version ever happened, they were the ones getting cease and desist letters. And so this led to a lot of fan disappointment and quite an uproar among the fandom. So ThinkGeek responded in a blog post in April of 2013 saying that they really didn't change their stance in terms of the copyright rules and apologized to the fans for the inconvenience, but they did say that they would try to make it up to fans by donating all the proceeds from licensed hat sales to a charity that some of the brown coats had had started. It was called Can't Stop the Serenity. It was a charity meant to raise funds for equality now, and so Think Geek really didn't want hard feelings about this issue. And it doesn't sound like a lot of the fans really did have lingering hard feelings either towards Think Geek. A lot of the brown coats who had been making these hats seemed to understand that they were going to have a cease and desist letter come their way eventually and that they wouldn't last forever. And some of them just seemed a bit surprised that they lasted that long in making these hats that were not really abiding by certain copyright, copyright restrictions or whatever. This is a very unique case for a couple of reasons when it comes to thinking about ownership over content related to a TV show. 
because fans are the ones that are investing in it. The term investment is key here. They're investing their time, they're investing their energy to promote the show, they're investing their emotions into watching these characters and bringing them to life and keeping the conversation about them going. But how do they get compensated for that investment? Is there an investment back in them financially? Is it just through privileges, like being able to make your own fan merch? And what are the legal versus ethical implications of who owns what aspects of a show? What does ownership of a show and the characters mean? So this is really complicated with this show specifically because, first of all, there was never an official version sold. So it would be entirely a different discussion if there was a licensed version and then fans were making money off of an unauthorized version on the side. That would be a whole different legal and ethical debate, and that might lead creators to respond differently to the Firefly hats. But this was a unique case where the fan merch actually came before any official merch was ever made. So fans really are to, they deserve the credit for causing the official merch to be made. So then how much should they be compensated for providing that intellectual property, essentially, to the licensed creators? Second variable that complicates things is that the cast and crew gave their thumbs up to the unofficial hats. Before a licensed version was on the market, the cast was already voicing their their praise and admiration for and just feeling touched by the hats that fans had been making all those years. And so when the cast gives their seal of approval to an unofficial version, that further complicates the debate about how, who deserved, would the cease and desist letter warrant it or not. And then third is the fact that the people making the hats unofficially, those fans seem to, on the whole, not profit much at all. Because they really didn't do it as like a get-rich scheme or anything. They were just fans of this obscure, short-lived TV show who wanted to support other fans of that same obscure, short-lived TV show by giving them merch. And so it wasn't like they gave them away for free, which would also lead to a different discussion. But they invested a lot of the money they got they invested back in buying yarn and other supplies to make these hats. So it wasn't like any of them were just getting rich mooching off of supporters of the show. They were giving hats and then selling them at a price that would give them not much profit in the end when they had a, they reinvested that money into making more hats. To me, this debate has to do with a couple of different clashing values that were summarized well by Josh Stenger in this sociology paper about Buffy the Vampire Slayer fans and their reactions to clothes and props from Buffy the Vampire Slayer being sold on eBay. So he reflected on how this was really a watershed moment for fandom studies to see how fans reacted to those eBay auctions because they really showed a moment that that was a shift in the dynamics between ownership of of parts, actual like physical parts of a show. And so that brings up so many questions. So he said, quote, the public's reception of eBay's auction of Buffy the Vampire Slayer's wardrobe items marked an instructive collision of online fandom, television production, and e-commerce. As opportunities for critique and fantasy production, the clothes crystallized tensions within the series and among fans. Between ownership and authorship, a viable feminist politics, and the sexualization of casting characters, the perceived egalitarianism of online communities, and eBay's explicit competitiveness. So ultimately, what he summed up in the piece is talking about how the 
all these different things that may be viewed as dichotomies are not. And he really unpacks the nuances in how television fandoms have to operate because there are some certain structural forces they have to operate within even while they're critiquing those same forces and seemingly acting against them. So in other words, fandoms can do things as grassroots projects like the Firefly Hats where they start just from the ground up. It's just they take matters into their own hands and do something. It's not like they're being instructed by people higher in a hierarchy of people associated with the show to make those hats. They were doing it of their own accord. But they had to sell them through stores like Etsy, eBay, etc. And so when you sell stuff there, that is, it's basically the, it's a mix of values. You can't disentangle the fact that they were uh, embodying this seemingly resistance movement to uh, people who were ignoring the show. They were raising their voices and demanding people pay attention to the show, which can be viewed as this uh, this great uh, television advocacy for the show. But on the other hand, they had to get the word out about this through a mainstream means, through a traditional means, through uh, through a corporate purposes and intents, basically. So just really talking about how fans have to show where their investment is but cannot fully take agency over where that investment can be because of just larger social and financial systems at play. And so it just brings about a lot of interesting questions about who owns fan property, what is official merch, what does it even mean to be official merch, and should there be punishments for fans uh, doing certain things with that merch, or should it be viewed as just a nice free gift to the show and free PR? And it really is indicative of how much a show can symbolize individually. Because fandoms are described as a collective a lot, but it's important to keep in mind that they each also have a very individualized connection to whatever show resonates with them. As, as fandoms get more opportunities to mainstream and streamline their production of fan merch, it also requires relinquishing some of that individual autonomy, which brings up further complications to the debate about how they're compensated, how the forms of their fan merch will change over time, and how those values get compromised due to creators and people behind the scenes of the show. What it really comes down to is, I think, epitomized well by looking at the X-Files fandom. On September 10th of 1993, the pilot episode for the X-Files aired on Fox, and then by December 1st of 1993, already one of the first X-Files fan sites went up. It was created on this thing called Usenet, and the actual title of the account was alt.tv.xfiles, and in 1996, the search for X-Files would produce around 100 hits if you googled it. But by 1999, just three years later, the searches for X-Files in Google would produce over 700 hits. From 100 to 700 in two years. So it came and went in waves when you saw big indications of the X-Files fandom really, really catching on. But it definitely did, and the cast of the X-Files really helped egg it on and were very, very receptive and really built up a relationship with the owners of these fan sites. In the early 90s, Chris Carter and other creators and staff members of the show held frequent Q&As on the show's official website. They also even would confess in some interviews to making it a habit. The show's writers would habitually lurk on fan sites to get information in fan chat rooms, looking at comments and feedback to episodes, and just seeing what the conversation was around the episodes because 
They could then use that information to shape further storylines, and they would get inspiration for further storylines from fans through watching and seeing what people said on online, on these forums. One of the writers said, quote, I remember one specific instance where I was actually inspired to write an episode because of something I read on a message board. It was during the third season, and I was flying back from a fan convention in Minnesota when I read one comment noting that we hadn't followed up on the death of Scully's sister earlier in the year. I realized this this was not only true, but an enormous oversight. I thought about it all the way to the airport, and by the time my plane landed in Los Angeles, I had outlined most of the episode that became Piper Maru. And he goes on in another a part to say of the interview to say, a, quote, a group of frequent correspondents emerged through those fan sites. So I started to get a sense of who the people were who were most frequently on the social network. Then you start to get a sense of their personalities and their sense of humor, and it's all over the world. I can tell you about X-Files fans now on every continent. So basically not just saying that writers take inspiration from fans in their conversations online, but overtly clarifying that, yeah, whole episode ideas come out of what fans are saying, and fans are those big detectives for them. It goes back to the concept of forensic fandom, when you have the ability for fans to point out even the writer's oversights in a storyline, and where fans point out which character should be more developed or should get a follow-up story or what loose ends still need to be tied up, fans serve as those reminders, and they are all around the world. The reach can be farther than ever and more detailed than ever in terms of how much they think about each episode. So it may add pressure, but it also adds a lot of free PR help to the writers and producers of shows. And the fans continue to get love not just from online Q&As and having their ideas actually used in episodes, but they would get shoutouts during the actual show. For example, after one X-Files fan died of cancer in 2001, a character was named after her. That was Special Agent Alayla Harrison, named after a fan. And the final season, the opening sequence of the final season would always have some shoutout to the fans as well. The show ended in 2002, but in 2007, xfilesnews.com was created by a fan named Holly Simon with an actual staff of 40 volunteers. So, unpaid, but still they were technically, you know, that was their job to work for xfilesnews.com. And the original goal of this was, despite the show going off the air, was to help promote a movie that was going to be called The X-Files I Want to Believe. And... It, that's actually the title, The X-Files I Want to Believe. I'm not just saying that, uh, the I Want to Believe part. Anyway, and so it was actually kind of an intel dropper. It, it was the TMZ of television news. It broke a lot of stories that had previously gone unseen and unheard. The site leaked behind-the-scenes video content, some excerpts from scripts, images from behind-the-scenes of sets, and so it was not just universally accessible content. This fan site somehow got a lot of information that was probably not expected to ever fall into their hands. The site became so popular, it had everything from email lists and periodic updates you could subscribe to, to episode and character guides, to chat rooms, to just all sorts of speculation about different aspects of the show that were up for interpretation. Even analyses of the Nielsen ratings of the show were involved. And over time, the fan community really bonded over more than just this show. The show was the starting point of their talk, but then it would branch out into deeper conversations about pop culture, media literacy, 
Uh, just all sorts of skills and critical thinking were initiated through these conversations that all started with the love for their TV show. In July of 2008, 20th Century Fox reached out to Holly Simon and asked if they could make this site an official fan site that would be dedicated to the film. And this was actually the only X-Files fan site to ever receive that honor and that type of outreach from 20th Century Fox themselves. And, of course, they accepted, and the X-Files news site became the only fan site invited to the red carpet premiere when that movie eventually came out. And the site also got access at that premiere to interview the cast and crew. In the spring of 2009, the X-Files news site correspondents went to this book signing that the show's creator was having, Chris Carter, and they asked him while they were there what it would it take to persuade the X-Files cast to make another movie. They had made two so far. And so they asked him during the book signing, what would it take to make a third movie? So Carter responded by saying, well, you could try a, writer, a letter writing campaign to Fox that might get their attention. And that really shifted and instigated this, injected this new sense of purpose into that website. So now that the movie was out, that the whole website had been built around hyping up, the fan site had a new target to hype up, which was a third movie that they would hype up through this new campaign that they called... XF3 Army Campaign, Believe in the Future. And this campaign started out with the letter writing that he had suggested, but also they went on to to upload YouTube videos, to gather postcard messages from fans around the world. Some even designed an actual XF3 Army uniform that fans could purchase. So they had it all. They had the outfit, they had the campaigning, the networking around the world. Then in January of 2011, the X-Files news site started what they call Phase 4 of that campaign, encouraging fans to make their own movie posters and trailers to make this happen. Then March 10th of 2012, the, X the X-Files was trending on Twitter for exactly 24 hours regardless of location, so they found ways to use different hashtags to keep the X-Files trending hour after hour for 24 hours regardless of location, meaning that from when the first time zone would reach midnight on March 10th to when the last time zone would reach midnight on March 11th. And actor, the actors from the X-Files really responded positively to that Twitter trend. So over decades, X-Files fans have continued to find ways to galvanize around movie releases, around just in general promoting the show and analyzing it and keeping the show alive and keeping that passion for it alive. Another project that the fandom did was in the fall 2009, that was really cute. It was called the Frank and Bear Project, and it was when three fan sites teamed up. So the X-Files News worked with IBG Inc. and Skype Files, and the three of them had this Frank and Bear teddy bear, which they they named after this nickname for Frank Spotnitz, who was affiliated with the show, and they had this Frank and Bear travel around the world with different fans, posting uh, pictures of themselves at different tourist attractions in their own homelands, and then all the pictures of Frankenbear traveling the world would be posted to social media and the X-Files news site. And this served to double as a fundraiser based on social media engagement raising money, so then the proceeds would go to the UCLA Santa Monica Rape Treatment Center. In November of 2009, all of these pictures were compiled along with fan letters into the scrapbook that was then given to Frank Spotnitz, and they reached their funding goal of $1,500 very quickly. Dozens of fans ended up participating, and in the end, Frank and Bear ended up traveling to 25 different countries, and this wasn't really necessarily as part of their movie promo campaigns, but it was another way just for fans to connect and prove that 
This was more than just a fandom in any one part of the world. This fandom was all over the place. And a similar level of fan engagement and passion could be very palpable through Battlestar Galactica, which we will talk about more in a future episode. But for now, I will just say that it is a sci-fi epic show that had such a huge passionate fan base form early on. Battlestar Galactica premiered in the UK October 14th of 2004, and then premiered in the US January 14th of the following year, but some people ended up actually watching it early in the U.S. because British fans uploaded clips online before the USA premiere. So people thought the show was doomed. The content leak was viewed as ruining the premiere and spoiling everything. Um, and then the USA fan base was assumed to never never come. The buildup was gone. There was no month of buildup because it had been leaked early. But that actually ended up doing the opposite, and that just made the USA fans want more and more and want the full episode and get more and more hyped for the premiere than they would if they had just seen commercials and not full scenes of clips that were posted online. So it actually helped up the excitement for the USA premiere, and so that the message I guess you could take away from that example is that by allowing the content to spread online, even when it violated copyright restrictions, Worth of word of mouth marketing can still be a massive success, and then Battlestar Galactica producers really tapped into that uh, eagerness for for in the impatience that some of those fans had to share their Battlestar Galactica love and content in 2007 when the producers started this campaign asking fans to send in four minute tribute videos to help them decide how to change the vibe of the show going forward. So the show wanted to take a new direction and they wanted fans to essentially send in four minute pitches to help them decide how to do that. To better understand how this fan leverage over the content they get for, out of their favorite TV shows, how that leverage should be used, and what is what are the ethical considerations regarding that? Should they get paid for those ideas, those pitches, etc.? Before you even have that debate, you need to clarify the groundwork, the foundation for that argument by talking about how do we even conceptualize the fans, how much leverage, how do we define what their leverage even is, and their level of leverage before having the conversation about what to do with it. So, it's important to keep that in mind, and one way to do that is by what sociologists have termed the powerless elite. And so that is a way of basically, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's basically a concept that is, has been applied to TV fandoms, talking about how it's a powerless elite. It's a group that feels like they're a part of an exclusive club that does have social leverage and other leverage in terms of just appearing very intelligent and insightful about that topic, their TV show that they love. And at the same time, they still have to work within the realm of people way higher in this hierarchy. They're still at the bottom of the food chain when it comes to talking about their favorite show and influencing its content. They're still at the bottom compared to the producers and the writers and people who are on the payroll for the show. One case study talked about the concept of the powerless elite by looking at Doctor Who fans, and their finding was, quote, Doctor Who fans work intensively to disempower themselves and keep the fan-producer separation in place. Um, but others reached the totally opposite conclusion, that fans do not actively, as they, as they phrase it, disempower themselves in the relationship and appear like the underdogs that are going to have this resistance, inherently resistant grassroots movement to save their show or whatever. Some actually do the opposite, and they want to be viewed as the opposite of an underdog, and fandoms want a better relationship that does blur the lines between 
fans and producers and writers. Some other sociologists, Henry Jenkins and John Tulloch, talked about this a little differently, arguing that fans calling them powerless elites is inaccurate because the dividing line is not super clear between fans and the creators of these shows. They argue that those fans that, that add so much input to shows that ends up in the final product in one way or another, that should not be discounted and viewed inherently as this resistant thing that happens once in a blue moon. It's much more normal to have blurred lines between creators and fans, between paid and unpaid PR, and especially given the internet these days and the increased ability for fans to do unpaid PR. And so they argue that fans are viewed as valuable aesthetically and valuable ideologically, but not valuable economically or perceived that way. And so that's how they argue for a different term. They don't like using the term powerless elite. Another sociologist, Francisco Alberoni, said, quote, Institutional power is very limited or non-existent, while their actions nevertheless arouse a considerable degree of interest. So that argues in favor of using the powerless elite label, that their actual institutional influence can be cannot really be quantified in a way that is super substantial. Basically arguing that if it's not a quantifiable view, uh, it's not a quantifiable... Um, thing in terms of their influence being on the payroll or the end credits, then it's not enough to really be worth viewing as, some th as having leverage at all. This is from a senior lecturer, William Proctor, from uh, Bournemouth University talking about transmedia culture. Quote, Fans have taken seriously their role as publicists, helping to direct attention around their own agenda, and the industries in turn are not only valuing these fans because they play important roles in a media-saturated culture, they also are seeking to control and exploit the energies of fans toward their own ends. So again, going back to the debate about how much these fans are being manipulated and used, as opposed to how much we should just give them more credit and agency and not such a bad rep because they are just being invested in something they love and for a long time have been judged for getting so invested in a piece of pop culture. So it gets tricky understanding where the lines suddenly get blurred between showing your passion and hearing from people who were involved in the making of the show validate that passion versus them taking advantage of that passion that they recognize. Where that line may totally get crossed, that seems to be the consensus, is that it most often gets crossed when actual dollars are exchanged. So we're going to talk about actual crowdfunded projects. Part 4, Fans Funding Projects. There are several Kickstarter campaigns that really emphasize and demonstrate how much fans really invest in and hope for certain outcomes for their shows and how much they try to sway the writers and producers and everyone else who makes those shows. So the first example is with Veronica Mars. The show's creator actually started this Kickstarter campaign in 2013, Rob Thomas. He started this fund and the goal was to raise $2 million from fans to make a Veronica Mars movie, but it actually ended up raising $5.7 million and broke a lot of Kickstarter records, becoming the fastest project on Kickstarter to ever reach $1 million, then becoming the fastest to reach $2 million in less than 10 hours, and the numbers just kept going higher and higher. Over 91.5 thousand backers participated, most the most backers ever for a fund in Kickstarter's history. 
Backers who pledged $10 or more would get free Veronica Mars stickers with their pledge, and those who donated $35 or more would get a digital copy of this Veronica Mars movie when it was made. And a $600 donation would actually get you a personalized video message from Veronica Mars herself, actress Kristen Bell. But fans were definitely left disappointed because the movie did end up being made, but it was only available to watch via this streaming site called Flickster. And it was not available to download, so you just had to log into Flickster and watch it, and you couldn't download it. It was also deemed very low quality. Donors were very disappointed, and some wanted their money back. There was a lot of disappointment in it just being streamable, and so as a result of that, Rob Thomas issued a statement saying, quote, More than anything, I genuinely want today to be perfect for all of you. It's March 14th. Today your movie came out worldwide, and I want you to be able to watch it on whatever platform or device works best for you. But despite his uh, perceived genuine willingness and desire to please the fans and do this project for them, was it really, at the end of the day, for them? Because it made, it made the company money, but it didn't please the fans as much as expected. And it's not like they made it more accessible after fan outrage. So the fan outrage of the low accessibility didn't really go anywhere. In a similar crowdfunding story, there, a Zach Braff movie called Wish I Was Here was made through fan donations. This was a dramedy that was out in January of 2014, and the movie was made for $5 million. Both in-person and online screening options were available for the backers to get access to. And this was an acknowledgement, really, of that Zach Braff had this large, had already had this large popularity outside of the USA. So all over the world, people could participate. And then if you were outside of the USA, instead of being invited to the in-person premiere, you could be invited to an online screening. And a $10,000 donation could win you a line in the movie. Not sure if anyone actually donated that much, but that raised a lot of money and fans on the whole didn't seem didn't seem upset that their money was used for this. So the quality, I guess, was to their liking. Then there was this other movie, though, that was a lot less popular called The Canyons. This was a crowdfunded movie starring Lindsay Lohan from July of 2013. On Rotten Tomatoes, it got a 21%. On Metacritic, it got a 36%. And on IMDb, it got a 3.8 out of 10. And at the box office in the U.S., it made $265,670. So in the hundreds of thousands, which I guess could be worse, um, the movie actually, though, cost $250,000 to make. So it made $265,000, and it cost $250 to make. So not a ton of profits at the end of the day. Approximately 160000 of the dollars used to make the movie came from donors, and then the director, the writer, and the producer each pitched in to make up for the rest of the money needed. It's a movie with a very generic plot about an affair between main characters, and really all of the chatter about this movie came about not because of the movie itself or the generic plot. It was because of the fact that it was a crowdfunded movie project. So that's where it got its publicity from, which brings a lot of, a lot of questions to mind. There, were, there are times, though, where the strategy has not worked, and this ploy for money has been seen as just a ploy 
For example, Melissa Joan Hart, she attempted to gain $2 million through crowdfunding for a movie idea she pitched called Darcy's Walk of Shame, which never got made. It was a super cringe-inducing online video she posted with her mom, basically encouraging fans to donate to so that she could make this movie. This was after she had starred in Sabrina the Teenage Witch and stuff. It's not like she was a struggling-to-be-seen actress. And so she said, um, she said quotes like, you know, don't you want to be, uh, don't you want to see me in a movie, do this or that? That. and she basically claimed uh, she defended her choice to do this by saying that she was just sidestepping the typical gatekeepers that were unfairly looking down on her and typecasting her after she was Sabrina the Teenage Witch so she was just avoiding that casting hurdle and typecast by just casting herself and letting fans uh, boost her up really instead of going through the traditional audition route she hoped to raise two million dollars by doing this but she came up short by a million nine hundred forty-eight thousand three hundred ninety-five dollars. She that was the amount she came up short. One million nine hundred forty-eight thousand three hundred ninety-five dollars short of two million. So the project was scrapped. Needless to say. So why would directors do this if they have all this money? typically, or at least more than your average fan, why are they taking fans' money instead of finding a way to get wealthy donors to help out more or just fund it themselves? Why are they, why are established stars even doing this when they don't need to for the money and other people could use platforms like Kickstarter that need the money more? Well, first of all, it has to do with the concept of an underdog story. No matter how big you are at, in Hollywood, you probably still have a little bit of joy at getting an underdog story, at feeling like people are rooting for you. It's validating to see the number climb of people who donated to you and believe in you. Second of all, it is a way to get a lot of PR buzz about your movie, because like I said about The Canyons, some movies, that what they're talked about, not for the generic plot, but for the promo, the unique promo method used, or just some other thing about them that is buzzworthy and different and stands out. And the third thing is that directors can turn to crowdfunding in, as a way to really maintain control of their project. Because if they did go to more movie industry backers and more bigwigs and pleaded to them to get more money, they would have to relinquish more, relinquish more control over their project. And so just asking for fan contributions is a way to sidestep that obstacle. But on the flip side, there are a lot of risks when these creators try to get crowdfunding. One is that there are inherently expectations and pressure to not scrap the project, to actually put that money to good use, and there's a lot riding on that expectation, and fans may ask for a refund if you don't meet, meet that expectation. There's also the lost revenue when you don't tra don't invest in just tra traditional advertising forms that work and focus too much on word of mouth. And the third thing is that there is riskiness that comes with being unable to truly predict the success of a movie according to critics, and so it puts a lot of responsibility on the donors to come through as an audience and spread the word. So then they are kind of pressured into being PR agents, which brings up a whole different dimension of the conversation about should fans be compensated and in so in what and if so in what ways um, if they contribute ideas to a TV show or a movie because. You could argue that they do that just willingly. It's just a passion. They love talking about their favorite content. And so why would they get paid for that? 
But if this is this feels like it's less of their own free will and just doing it out of joy, it feels like more of an obligation, and they're doing that because they're told to implicitly. It feels like when fans have put money into something, and it feels like then you're you're in this implicit contract to spread the word about whatever you just put money towards and see the project through, and so then. Is it should fans be compensated? Is it even right to take their money? Then that's a different conversation. So a key way to look at this is when Henry Jenkins, in a different essay, talked about convergence culture, which is a term I'll probably use in the future a lot on the show. Convergence culture is basically describes that moment when fans are needed to keep that culture a certain way. That the culture is what it is and would not be that way without the fans. And so naturally. Convergence culture is huge now, and especially when you have a crowdfunding campaign, it wouldn't exist without the fans. And so that's when different levels of hierarchy, when it comes to cultural consumption, converge and collapse onto each other and blurs those lines. And when, while some describe convergence culture as this entirely dangerous, worrisome trend, this scholar named Jane Bordeaux thought of it a different way. She viewed fan labor as being compensated, but in a different way than financially. She viewed compensation in terms of different forms of capital. So she described fandom activities as building up your social and cultural capital as opposed to financial capital in relationships. So she saw fandom affiliation as being based on your level of capital. Capital being, in this case, referring to your amount of knowledge and insight and theorizing into this TV show universe, your commitment to it, your level of time spent talking about it and posting about it and spreading the word about it, all of that stuff adds to your social capital. And then people in a fandom are hierarchically structuring themselves based on who has what levels of that capital. And so she viewed fandoms as still having hierarchies within them and those not totally collapsing. And she viewed as the more capital you have, the stronger your, quote, webs of social influence and association are. So she would say the more of that social capital you have in a fandom, the more impact you can have and the more likely you are to actually hear back from or have someone receptive towards you that it actually works on the project. They gain their worth, they become the like go-to person in a fandom when they prove their capital that determines their status. Henry Jenkins talked similarly about this in the 90s back in one of his most iconic pieces called Textual Poachers, talking about how fan fiction and other recreations of pop culture that people are fans of is done not for compensation but for social recognition. So really it is fan labor, but the fan labor is compensated in terms of relationships, in terms of that affirmation, that validation that there it's not just some weird obscure interest they have, that it's something that fans are resonating with and agree with. It's about community. It's about all sorts of forms of compensation they get just in terms of their social health and just emotional satisfaction, just not financial support. Similarly, Julia Russo talked, this was in, the, in 2009, so a little bit uh, more recent, about the concept of horizontal creativity, which is described really as a more democratic and fair equal way of engaging with content, whereas vertical creativity really is based on what the companies want, like with ABC Family and what they did directing 
video submissions and being the censors of it all. Russo argues that those methods of filming material and that top-down approach, or bottom-up rather, is a way to better uh, dem democratize and legitimize the process. To sum it all up, how do television fandoms form and get maintained? Part one is getting fans invested in the show, which is like what Pretty Little Liars did with social marketing, social media marketing strategies that keep them engaged and keep the conversation alive online about a show. Also just qualitatively shows like Lost lean into things like making sure each episode has a purpose and engages with the forensic fandom, that ability to be detectives and decode and spend a lot of time with the content, as well as narrative complexity, the element of surprise. Having all those elements is crucial for a show's success and continued relevance. Then you have to also think about who you're talking about and how you talk about the fans. So, for example, with Stein's views on millennial fandom, talking about how shows like Glee are viewed as a way for fans to find their self-identity and create their own self-image over time. And it's important to view fans in that light as opposed to judging their interest and not better understanding it. And so understanding that can really shape how producers and these writers and everyone associated with making a TV show acts on fans' requests and influences. Also, it is important to keep in mind how fans keep a show alive because they keep interest in watching the show in general, like the, the website Television Without Pity. And sources that provide all those detailed fan-made episode guides and such are ways that fans can feel like they don't miss out on any part of the show and they get their cheat sheet access into the fandom. Then part two is about keeping the show alive by making sure it's revived or renewed and having campaigns to save the show or to change the direction of the show from The Twilight Zone to Star Trek to the show Chuck to Community, One Day at a Time, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Shadowhunters, whether it's putting a banner outside of the headquarters or just causing a social media ruckus about it, or even getting a partnership with Subway just to help your show get sponsors. Whatever it is, it's about putting pressure on the people involved and the cast and crew and making them know that there is an audience there. It's there and making that presence known and loud and clear. Part three has to do with that unofficial PR work, the c continuous promotion of the show that you just tried to save, like with Firefly and making fan-made merch and things like that and trying to figure out how you can add your own creative impact on the legacy and the lasting legacy of a show, as well as this part of the television fandom process doing that PR work goes back to talking about how objects mean things to us and so that's when you bring bring meaning to props and outfits like Buffy the Vampire Slayers to how you find meaning within those actual objects so there's so much more than objects to you and then that can also of course this is a part in the process where fan riffs can certainly develop within fandoms about what those objects should represent but that conversation is still being had and at the end of the day that's what adds to the show's lasting legacy. The, then, it, of course, that promotion is affected by the relationship. More than anything else, I would argue, the fans' relationship with the people actually working on the show is the highest variable when talking about how, fan, how this fan impact actually can be effective. 
So how much contact they actually have with the people involved has to be the biggest variable, really, with how much they actually influence the final products they get. And so The X-Files is a key example of a TV show that really formed quite the bond with the people behind the show that led to its specific shaping its specific narratives, even names of its characters. And that led to fan sites teaming up and really ultimately showed and demonstrated the power of fandoms when they come together around certain causes beyond just the TV show that they originally bonded over. Then, though, this is when things may get tricky because during this promotion part of this process, there can be some exploitation and taking advantage of fan labor, like making them make their own trailers, like for Battlestar Galactica, and otherwise directly pitching the writers' ideas for them. There's some debate as to how much power fans actually have in that dynamic, but some do view them as liking that powerless elite status, and others prefer a different term for it, but all to say that the amount of leverage fans have over their favorite TV shows is worth noting and worth contemplating because it can get quite complex in terms of ethics, in terms of logistics, all of that. And But ultimately, fans take the role very seriously and want to be those PR agents for their favorites, but where it gets extra ethically tricky is when money actually changes hands over the shows. So part four of this process of showing fan devotion really is through funding projects directly where fans actually help crowdsource and provide financial help to get a movie off the ground or a TV renewal or whatever. And in these times, it doesn't always work. And so that brings about questions, not just about the uh, the eth- efficacy of fan of crowdfunding projects, but also of what kind of role they should or should not have in television production because it it embodies the pros and cons of a convergence culture, a world where hierarchies are collapsing in terms of fans, writers, producers, actors, but at the same time that collapse of and that convergence culture can be viewed as a worrisome trend if you're looking at fans not being sure they're given their fair share of the credit and deciding who really owns that content and how free really is that fan labor. Some argue it's actually freer than ever because social media is a way that with horizontal creativity, fans can democratize the process of getting ideas to a TV show script and can really work uh, in a horizontal way without hierarchies to communicate ideas to join different fan sites together for projects and things like that. So it can be a powerful force, these TV fandoms, for better or for worse, all to show their love for a show. So ultimately, how a television show leaves an impact is this is not a uh, mutually exclusive list nor a direct chronology, but the steps can be broken down and categorized as getting television shows leave an impact by getting fans super invested in the show by actually being unofficial PR agents of the show, by saving the show and renewing it and just keeping it alive in certain ways, and by actually funding the show and investing in it. Whatever, However the term investment is conceptualized for that show, it may not be actual money exchanging hands, but sometimes that is the case. My take on this is that this is just a debate worth having because I don't have a solid take on it, but I think there should be more attention paid to how much fans are shaping the content, and probably more than ever thanks to social media. And so if fans are 
inherently indirectly adding to an actor's resume they are changing what happens in scripts there are actual physical signs of evidence that fans are impacting media that should be acknowledged in some way and they're you know they can be PR agents unpaid PR for everything from how stylists dress them for red carpet premieres to how long an end credit sequence is or is not maybe and so it's a worthwhile debate. It's also important, I think, to validate and show appreciation. And compensation maybe is just by actually just tweeting thank you. But maybe the compensation of appreciation is enough that way. But some sort of appreciation needs to be symbolized uh, to the fans. Because they are owed a lot. And we get to think about what they are owed. But they are owed something that is not up for debate, I think. And fandom views have become such an integral part of the media-making process that they deserve acknowledgement. Because actors should feel very lucky that they have people who have their back, who have the show's back, and who care so much about that show and its, its future. And so some form of... Again, terms like O, compensation and investment, it may be weird and unclear how that should manifest, but it should manifest in some way for payoff for these fans in more than just a hobby because it really does take a lot of fan labor to be these unpaid spokespeople. And we're going to talk about this more in the next series of episodes of the show. We're going to talk about fan fiction specifically, how shows and movies like After and Fifty Shades of Grey and Twilight, how certain fan fiction actually became legitimized and how that really shows all the altered dynamics we've been talking about throughout this these segments talking about TV fandoms and how those fandoms are changing in ways that are worth noting and debating how to handle. So we are going to talk about really fan labor and who owns art is the ultimate question. Who owns that idea, that message? Thank you for listening and I will see you next week.